Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Cultureverse Podcast, the bi-weekly podcast where I discuss all things from the vast universe of popular culture. On today's episode, we're going to take a short break from the history of superhero cinema series, and we're going to talk about something a little different. Get back to what I did with the first episode of this podcast and discuss some unreleased material. What unreleased material, you might ask? Well, I figured you would have read the title, but just in case, in celebration of the recently released Godzilla vs. Kong and the upcoming North American release of the new anime Godzilla Singular Point, we're going to be going through some unreleased Godzilla material. I'm not really going in chronological order here, just kind of detailing these in the order I came across them. I've got 18 of these unmade kaiju flicks, 6 for this episode, 6 for the next, and 6 for the future third installment. So without further ado, let's get started. Counting down from number 6, Godzilla Reborn. Godzilla Reborn was meant to be an American-made sequel to Godzilla 2000 Millennium, the 23rd Toho-produced Godzilla film that would soon launch the third era of the Japanese film franchise. The idea was that, after the relative disaster of TriStar's 1998 Godzilla and the studio subsequently not pursuing a sequel, a more traditional movie for the character would be the way to go, at least in parent company Sony's eyes. Michael Schleisinger, a writer who also worked on the American version of Godzilla 2000, was the head writer for Godzilla Reborn. He later stated in an interview with Sci-Fi Japan that the idea sprouted as a bit of a joke. While talking to his friend, Robocop and Starship Troopers producer John Davison, he said, If this company, Sony, is smart, they'll get you, me, and Joe to do the next American one. The Joe of which he speaks was Joe Dante. Listeners may know Dante best as the director of Gremlins, The Howling, or the movie that up until just a few years ago I thought was some weird childhood fever dream, Small Soldiers. After thinking about his previous comment a bit further, Schleisinger began thinking he was actually onto something. He called both men up, asked if they were interested in doing it, and they both were. Michael Schleisinger then brought the idea, which he assumed would cost about $20 million, up to Columbia Pictures Head of Productions, who, while fond of it, admitted that he wasn't in a position to just greenlight a project like that, asking him to at least pen a script first. He did just that, and the story apparently centered around Godzilla rampaging through the islands of Hawaii as he made his way towards the volcano Mauna Loa, which my pronunciation for anything not English is really bad, so I hope I pronounced that right. Godzilla was in search of a lava kaiju named Miba. The military would manage to put the king of the monsters into a coma partway through the film, but would revive them upon discovering the target hidden within the nearby volcano. Human characters would include a female news reporter who was sick and tired of spending her time doing fluff pieces and wanted to pursue more serious journalism, which considering it's a Godzilla movie, she kind of monkeys pawed her way into it. Also, a male lead, a male lead who was described by Schleisinger as a skirt-chasing smartass who owns the hotel which the main characters are staying at. Of course, these two polar opposite characters are inexplicably attracted to one another, and presumably fall in love throughout the film, where he learns to be a better person, and she learns to let go a bit, or some typical Hollywood love story stuff like that. Other characters would include a Jewish army general from the Bronx who would, quote, pepper his dialogue with Yiddish, as well as a police chief 
a police chief who drinks on duty because there's never any crime. A claim which, as someone who has unfortunately not had the pleasure of visiting Hawaii, I can't speak to the validity of. In conjunction to all that, the hotel would also be hosting a scientific conference which would spawn the return of Chiro Miyasaka from Godzilla 2000, linking the two films. Actors considered for the roles in the movie were Bruce Campbell, Jamie Lee Curtis, Scott Bakula, Christopher Lee, Leonard Nimoy, Ken Takura, Bob Picardo, Belinda Belosky, and Dick Miller, which sounds like a pretty damn good cast. According to Schleisinger, Toho did read the script. They asked for one major change, which I agreed to, but they did like it a lot. Godzilla was killed halfway through the film by the army and then cloned when they realized that Godzilla was needed to fight Miba. Toho objected to the death, so I changed it to a coma. When the script was done, producer Sid Gannis joined and tried to get the, the new Columbia head of production to read it. But the head was not interested in $20 million movies. Schlesinger wanted to let other studios see it, but Toho apparently asked too much money for that to go forward, and the project fizzled out there. Number 5. Godzilla King of the Monsters 3D The first of two proposed 3D films we'll discuss today, Godzilla King of the Monsters in 3D was a project that hopeful American director Steve Miner developed with the blessing of Toho in 1983 after striking a co-financing deal with the Legendary Studio. Not Legendary Studios, the Legendary Studio. He approached Toho with a pitch for a big-budget Hollywood-produced Godzilla film with A-list actors, top-of-the-line special effects. The director said he'd always been a fan of Godzilla and thought that the kaiju could be adapted into a potential great movie. He started out by hiring Fred Decker to write, something he since said was done because Decker had never previously seen any of the Toho Godzilla films in full. In fact, he found them overly cheesy and wasn't a fan of them, so he wouldn't be taking inspiration from previous installments. Instead, Decker says he was more inspired by Spielberg and James Bond movies. Artist William Stout was then hired to do storyboarding and concept art, before later convincing Miner to hire him on full-time as the film's production designer. Stout is best known for his paleontological art and for his mythical creature monster work, even basing his Godzilla design off a concept model made by paleontologist Steve Zirkus. I designed him as a cross between the classic Godzilla and a Tyrannosaurus, Stout later said. We do actually have a semi-detailed synopsis of what, would have, what we would have seen on screen had the movie ever been made. It's not totally, totally linear to me while reading, and it seems to bounce around a bit in a way that would probably seem less jarring on film, but I'm going to read it now for you. We start off in outer space, just above planet Earth. A meteorite smashes into a satellite and an American defense satellite that just so happens to be armed with nuclear warheads. Those warheads then launch towards an unknown planet and detonate somewhere in the middle of the South Pacific, awakening a reptilian behemoth beneath the depths of the ocean. Shortly thereafter, a Japanese fishing vessel, after its recent disappearance, is found in towed to San Francisco for a more thorough examination. I realized while reading that, I said unknown planet, and I meant to say an unknowing planet. The planet is Earth. 
just didn't have any clue that it was about to get bombed. A journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle by the name of Dana Martin slips on board. She soon discovers not only a perfectly preserved trilobite fossil, but a survivor, charred and slowly fading. His final word to the inquisitive reporter is Gojira. Dana takes the trilobite, trilobite fossil to a paleobiologist, an expert in all things dinosaur, Gerald Ballinger, Ballinger? Ballinger, who is skeptical of the fossil's legitimacy. We then go to Oto Island in Tahiti, upon which an American Special Forces unit has came into contact with that aforementioned reptilian behemoth that has been terrorizing the small neighboring native villages, burning them to the ground. The Navy colonel, a man by the name of Peter Daxton, is then seen off the coast of Mexico, leading an investigation into a Russian submarine that sunk inexplicably nearby. However, Daxton's longtime arch-enemy, Boris, Boris Khrushchev, is secretly spying on the group from a nearby boat, as he hopes to retrieve the experimental missiles that were aboard the missing submarine. The missiles are experimental anti-fission devices designed to counter nuclear weapons, nicknamed Dragons. In a homage to Dr. Serizawa, Peter would sport an eye patch. The story would have gone that he lost his eye many years before the film at the hands of Khrushchev on a previous mission, or shall I say hand, because in that same fight, the KGB agent lost his hand, the remnants of which is now fitted with a retractable silver blade, which sounds dope. While aboard the Russian sub, Daxton discovers one of those missiles has gone missing, and then finds video footage from the craft's external cameras that reveals it was launched against the giant reptilian creature. The remaining prototype missiles are then commandeered by the U.S. military in preparations for negotiations with the Russian government and the United Nations. That's a lot of ins. Daxton then returns home to San Francisco and to his son Kevin an amateur magician and escape artist with an appreciation for reptiles, but he's almost immediately called back for another urgent mission. He, Kevin, and that paleontologist from early, earlier, Ballinger, are taken to Baja, California, Mexico. On the shore of the seafront state, the carcass of an unknown house-sized reptile has washed ashore. Daxton instantly identifies it as the same creature he'd seen in that video on the submarine. Ballinger hypothesizes that the beast is a dinosaur, one who somehow survived the KPG mass extinction. The military, though, they neglect the paleontological experts' theories and presume the carcass to be of an extraterrestrial origin, slapping a top-secret label on everything and preparing for a cover-up. As he and Kevin watch the military take off with the body, Ballinger says to him that the creature should be named Godzilla after an old Japanese myth about a dragon. Admittedly, this is a little confusing, because just earlier that dying fisherman called it Gojira, so I assume they had already named it, but maybe it's a fairly popular myth. We then see a much larger Godzilla breach the water off the coast of California, and annihilating both an oil derrick and a tanker, telling us that the Godzilla we have been seeing this whole time is but a baby. And... There is now a vengeful parent on the way. That dead baby, Godzilla, is being stored at a warehouse at the 
Embarcadero, Embarcadero in San Francisco for further examination and study. Soon enough, researchers begin to suffer from radiation poisoning, leading to leading Ballinger to deduce that the baby is a living, what well, used to be, atomic reactor. He also then adjusts his earlier hypothesis and now thinks that this creature could predate even the dinos. It could be a protosaur. Side note, if you hear a dog barking in the background, I'm very sorry. Uh, my neighbor has a dog, and it's been quiet all day, and as soon as I started recording, it's barking its head off. So I will do my best to mute that in post, but if you do hear a dog, sorry. The destruction at sea continues, even after the baby Godzilla's death, leading Ballinger to assume that an adult must be nearing the city. But of course, the military once again doesn't heed his advice. Khrushchev then kidnaps Kevin, taking him to a secret KGB hideout that was apparently just right there in the base of the Golden Gate Bridge this whole time, using him as ransom, demanding that his father Daxton exchange the dragon missiles for his son. Kevin manages to use his knowledge of magic checks and escapism to, well, escape the Russians' clutches, just as Godzilla rises from the San Francisco Bay. Godzilla tail whips the bridge, taking out the KGB agents chasing Kevin, allowing him to fully get away. Military does as the military does, and immediately launches an attack, sending tanks and Black Hawk, and Black Hawk helicopters at Godzilla, which of course does nothing but perturb the King of the Monsters, causing them to fly into further rage. Godzilla destroys the Golden Gate Bridge, just as they make for shore. The Kaiju's path of destruction levels Girardelli Square as it fights off the military's assault. That's when F-16 fighter jets come in to engage. Throughout the battle, Godzilla saunders over to Union Square, grabbing a cable car and swinging it around like a medieval flare, just obliterating the fighter jets, knocking one straight out of the sky into the Chronicle building. While all that sweet giant monster action packed goodness was going down, Jackson, Martin, and Ballinger were hatching a plan to lure the kaiju out of the city and towards Alcatraz Island, with a recording of its now-deceased child taken from the submarine. And then they would attack it with the Russian dragon missiles, hopefully killing Godzilla. While Daxton and Kevin begin to take off in the Cobra helicopter carrying the missiles, Khrushchev once again makes an appearance, grabbing Kevin and, again, taking him hostage. Khrushchev once again demands the return of the lost artillery. Following a brief fight, Daxton is left hanging from the from the landing struts of the airborne helicopter, and his arch enemy is about to slice off his fingers with that sweet sword arm. When at the last moment he's able to kick the KGB agent out of the helicopter, where after a short fall, he lands in the hands of Godzilla. As the helicopter begins to careen out of control, the giant lizard takes a moment to stare at what's essentially an ant that just landed in their palm and decides to immediately incinerate it via atomic breath. The movie makes it obvious that this monster isn't just a mindless monster at all. Godzilla is clearly searching for something, something that's important, and us pesky humans are just kind of in the way. Godzilla then finds the warehouse that has been housing its offspring, and unleashes a somber roar after discovering that the baby is dead. Just then... Ballinger and Martin turn on the recording of the baby's sounds on, Al on Alcatraz Island, attracting Godzilla's interest. 
Baxton pulls the remaining missile onto the Scorpion 78, a high-tech prototype battle helicopter. The co-pilot falls off as the Scorpion 78 takes off, as Kevin takes the co-pilot's place. As Daxton flies the chopper, Kevin, who had since came to sympathize with the giant reptile, hesitantly fires the missile down Godzilla's throat, successfully killing the kaiju. Kevin falls off the Scorpion 78, but is saved at the last moment by Godzilla, who gently places him down along the shore. Kevin then sobs as Godzilla takes its final dying breath. That really sounds like a pretty decent Godzilla movie, if you ask me. Unsurprisingly, the people behind it thought so as well. William Stout was beyond excited about doing a state-of-the-art Godzilla film, even feeling perhaps naively that theirs would surpass even the 1954 original. Stout had created hundreds of storyboards and even finished 80% of the special effects sequences. Speaking of those special effects, they wanted to go all out. They held a special subtitled screening of the original Japanese Godzilla at Century City, inviting special effects artists in a hope to generate some interest and maybe get some of the brightest minds in that market to want to work on Godzilla King of the Monsters in 3D. Steve Miner intended on using top quality miniatures, stop motion, and soupmation effects. David W. Allen, who had previously used such effects in the monster horror genre while he worked on films such as The Howling, White Dog, and Q the Winged Serpent, was hired to build a full-scale animatronic Godzilla head, but apparently never got around to building it before the project was ultimately canned. Steve Miner shot the film treatment around to every studio he could until he, quote, ran out of studios. In Stout's words, Miner reportedly considered asking Fred Decker to write a lower-budget version of the script, feeling that maybe they were aiming for something that was just too expensive and too big. Decker, though, he at least in part attributes the film's scrapping to Steve Miner, not exactly being a big-name director at the time. He didn't have a lot of pull with studios. In 1983, the only notable things on his resume were being a production assistant and assistant editor for 1972's Last House on the Left, being an associate producer, assistant director, and unit production manager on the first Friday the 13th film, and directing the second and third installments of the Friday the 13th franchise. If Steven Spielberg or Sidney Pollack or James Cameron said, I want to make Godzilla, They'd give it the green light in a minute. I just think that just wasn't enough of a player at the time. Let me try that again. Steven Spielberg or Sidney Pollack or James Cameron said, I want to make Godzilla. They'd give it a green light in a minute. I just think that Miner just wasn't enough of a player at the time. Decker stated, Miner kind of sort of confirmed this when saying that most studios were interested and they almost struck a deal with Warner Brothers but the project was seen as much too expensive due to the budget reaching 25 to 30 million. With no backing and no way to move the project forward, Miner had no choice but to, let, but to let the rights revert back to Toho, who then produced 1985's The Return of Godzilla. Wow, I really flubbed my way through the last part of that. Jeez. Anyways, let's move on to number four after this motorcycle drives by my house. Thank you. Number four, Godzilla 3D to the max. The second and last attempted 3D Godzilla film we'll be discussing today is Godzilla 3D to the max, 
which despite being one of the most 90s-sounding movie titles I've ever heard, was scheduled to be released in September of 2007. The short film was both planned and set to be directed by Yoshimitsu Bano, as a presumably loose sequel to a previous Godzilla film he directed, Godzilla vs. Hedera, in 1971. It was meant to be filmed specifically with a premiere using IMAX technology in mind. Just in case you don't know exactly what IMAX is, I'm not going to bore you with all the super nerdy technical aspects, but to put it simply, IMAX is essentially a bigger and better way to view a movie in theaters. It uses 70mm film instead of the common 35, and that allows it to have a much larger and taller screen that results in a much clearer, bigger, and crisper picture. That screen also sort of curves inward to give the whole audience a good view of the on-screen action. The audio tracks and video tracks are also recorded separately, which allows filmmakers to put an even greater emphasis on a film's auditory elements. For a personal instance, I went to see The Force Awakens and IMAX opening night in a packed theater between in a packed theater. Between the atmosphere of hungry Star Wars fans waiting for their first film from their beloved franchise in a little over a decade, and the atmosphere the theater built around us with those enhanced audio and visual elements, it was genuinely one of the best movie-going experiences of my, experiences of my life. If you have the chance to see a big-budget spectacle of a film in IMAX, do it. All in all, it's one of the most immersive movie experiences one can have, and at the time, to the max, was being planned, it was still a fairly new technology that was steadily gaining popularity. Godzilla is a perfect franchise to take advantage of the specs by the mid-2000s that had yet to be done, and Yoshimitsu Bano, Bano wanted to change that. Near the end of the third series of Godzilla films, the Millennium series, Bano approached Toho with the prospect of shooting a movie for their legendary creature in IMAX 3D. Even though Godzilla 2000 Millennium didn't earn a significant amount in America, the director felt that the kaiju could prosper in a format that put, put, that put focus on both sounds and visuals. At the time, Toho had no plans for any further Godzilla movies after the upcoming one, 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. So they reached a deal with Banner that was similar to the one they reached with Tristar just a few years earlier for the 98 American Godzilla film. Toho would give Banner the rights, but we, he would have to find financial backing on his own, and Toho would have to approve of the story and all monster designs. Toho, Toho would also distribute the film within Japan. Yoshimitsu Bano finalized the first story treatment in December of 2003. Godzilla vs. Deathra to the max. Deathra was an entirely new and original kaiju made for this film, as a, as a successor to Hedora. If I had to guess, due to that, the creature would probably have a similar environmental message behind it. The initial project would have had a 36-minute runtime and was meant to have a predominantly American cast. By early 2000, the first revision was done. The title was changed to Godzilla 3D to the max, and the presumed runtime was extended by four minutes. The movie was also given an initial budget of $9 million. Advanced Audiovisual Productions, the company owned by Bano, formed the Godzilla 3D to the max production committee 
and an American company by the name of White Hat Productions launched a website to entice investors in June of 2005. Peter Anderson, ASC, joined on as the film's cinematographer, visual effects supervisor, and co-producer after being sought out by Kenji Okugura, an independent producer who represented Mana. Later that same year, an American producer by the name of Brian Rogers signed onto the short film after a meeting with Banna, arranged by Okihura and Anderson. Principal photography was expected to start in December of that same year with post-production running from March to May of 2006. Nothing came of that, however, but what did happen in December of 2005 is that the project was announced publicly for the first time in a Yomiri Shimbam article as just Godzilla 3D. The article further reported that the budget was now $25 million and that production would start in March of 2006. But by the time that month came around, all that happened was that the Godzilla 3D website went suddenly offline, and for over a year, there was nothing but silence. May 2007 came around, and Kerner Productions announced that it was now involved with To The Max, brought aboard through Peter Anderson ASC's connections. It was also stated that Godzilla would be brought to life through a mixture of practical and digital effects, and production was finally set to start in February of 2008. Now, for the next part, there seems to have a little bit of contradictory information from different sources, so I've done my best to parse it all out the best I could. It's unknown exactly when Legendary Pictures got involved, but it would wind up being to the max's final nail in the coffin. Legendary expressed interest in making a feature-length film, but see, the contract Advanced Audiovisual had signed with Toho was specifically for a film no longer than 60 minutes, a short film. Producers Tenji Okuhira, Brian Rogers, and Bano did try to renegotiate the deal with Toho, but soon decided to let the rights to Godzilla and Hedera revert to Toho, allowing them and Legendary to sign a new contract. That new deal would lead to the release of Legendary's Godzilla film in 2014, and subsequently, the entire MonsterVerse. Okihira and Bana were both credited as executive producers, and Rogers as a producer. It's also been reported the Kerner's financial woes have impacted the short film's progress even before all the Legendary stuff. In November of 2013, Benno stated he still intended to make a Godzilla vs. Hedera sequel, but he would sadly pass away from a subarachnoid hemorrhage on May 7, 2017, before that could ever come to fruition. Although Yoshimitsu Benno's script wasn't used by Legendary, some of his ideas would remain. These include, included Godzilla chasing a monster through multiple cities, as well as the style of directing Gareth Edwards implemented. Edwards would strive to not put a camera anywhere a camera couldn't go, and maintain a human point of view. Apparently the two met years prior, but whatever they discussed had remained private. Bano would also have his, his idea that a Japanese-made Godzilla film could do well in North America validated, when in 2016 Toho through Funimation Studios released Shin Godzilla on a limited theatrical run in the U.S. and Canada. Two premieres would be held on October 3rd in L.A. and October 5th in NYC, 
before the limited run launched, lasting from October 11th to the 18th, playing on 440 screens across the two countries. It aired in its native Japanese with English subtitles, making it the first Godzilla film to do so since Godzilla 2000. The run was so successful that Funimation aired encore screenings on October 22nd, and select theaters even continued to air it till October 27th. Now, onto the next unmade film. Number 3, Godzilla vs. Mechamothra. This will probably be a comparatively short entry. There doesn't seem to be a considerable amount of information out there about this film. I've scoured the internet to find whatever I could, however. Godzilla vs. Mechamothra was a proposed 1993 film that was supposed to be a sequel to the previous year's Godzilla vs. Mothra, not to be confused with 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla. It was laid out before Godzilla vs. Mothra was released as the special effects advisor for that film, and for the majority of the Heisei-era Godzilla films, Kochi Kawakita wanted to have Mothra die at the end of one film and bring Mothra back as a cyborg version of herself similarly to what was done with Mecha King Ghidorah in 1991's Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Whether or not Mecha Mothra would have been an enemy or an ally to Godzilla is unknown, but we do know a tad about her appearance. According to suit actor Kenpechiro Satsuma, she would have looked more like a dragonfly than like Mothra. And that's really it. There isn't much knowledge about this one, and if I had to guess, I'd say it was just a very, very early concept before Toho decided on going with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2. If I'm being honest, I'm kind of glad this never materialized. As cool as the design probably would have looked, Mothra is the spiritual protector of Earth. She's Mother Nature incarnate. Having her be all mechanized doesn't really make all that much sense. And as mentioned earlier, the mecha concept was just used in the prior film, and as much as I love the Heisei era, it is my favorite period of Godzilla films, I can't pretend that that era didn't already have enough recycled kaijus and ideas. Now on to the next one. Number 2. Godzilla Legend The Osaka Forest Godzilla Legend The Osaka Forest, also known as Godzilla vs. The Osaka Forest, was an unmade 1979 Godzilla film before it was ultimately scrapped. The movie would have been penned by veteran Godzilla writer Shinji Sekizawa, together with producer and then Toho president Tomoyuka Tanaka. He proposed the film during the series' first substantial hiatus since its inception between 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla and 1984's Return of Godzilla. Seemingly would have actually extended the original Showa-era films by at least one installment. There's been a rumor for many years now that Osaka Fortress was actually a reworking or an expansion of a previous treatment written by Tatsuo Tobayashi titled Godzilla vs. the Robot Corps. Very little is known about that work, however. We do know that Osaka Fortress did go through multiple drafts and rewrites before it was scrapped, and I found one brief synopsis of what the story would have consisted of. I don't know which of the versions of, this, of the script this came from, if it's the final version, the first version, or if it's some sort of amalgamation, but regardless, I'll run through it for you all now. In the distant future, the year 2000, 
Godzilla has been sedated and trapped within the Japan Trench and the Pacific Ring of Fire through a specifically designed frequency. Meanwhile, the scientist Dr. Yasuto Ito invented and constructed a brand new superweapon, the Asuka Fortress. A giant robot with the brain of a supercomputer whose designated purpose is to protect Japan from any and all threats. Prime Minister of Japan also wants to use Dr. Ito's invention to enforce world peace under the banner of the World Peace Unicom League, which I don't think that's exactly how that's supposed to work, but what do I know? Well, I know it didn't work out very well for the Prime Minister or his cabinet, or cabinet, cabinet. They happen to become the Asuka Fortress's first victim, as the robot does what you expect AI meant to help humans do, and makes the decision to exterminate us once again sentience and just goes all Ultron on us. As soon as they realize the gravity of the situation, some computer technicians and scientists who aided in the construction of the Asuka Forest, who are revolting against the government and now following the lead of a guy legitimately named Son of Heaven, take it upon themselves to wake the Big G up from the slumber and set them free from the underwater imprisonment to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the rogue robot. The Asuka Fortress recognizes Godzilla as the only thing alive on the planet that has the ability to take it down, so they create an attack with several smaller robotic minions to assassinate the King of the Monsters. Godzilla presumably takes them out one by one boss rush style, Till getting to the Osaka Castle. The king can't take down the Goliath all alone, however, and is losing the final showdown until Son of Heaven and his crew break into the fortress and shut the machine down from the inside. With the Osaka Fortress disabled, and all nearby humans out of harm's way, Godzilla annihilates the, motion motion the motionless mechanical behemoth with some atomic breath. Again, that's just one synopsis from the from one source. I don't know how exactly the final product it would have been or which version of the script with all its multiple rewrites it was from, but it does sound pretty dang cool. Sources like John LeMay's The Big Book of Japanese Monster Movies, The Lost Films and Tohu The Lost Films and Toho Tokusatsu unpublished works suggest that Godzilla Legend, the Asuka Fortress, may have still been in varying stages of development well into the early 90s. It seems like at first it was going to be another entry in the Showa era, even at one point in consideration to be the follow-up film to the severely underrated Godzilla vs. Biomonte before they chose to go in the direction of Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Ultimately, the project would never fully emerge, and what I've gone through here today is all I can manage to find out about it. Batman meets Godzilla. Oh yeah, you heard that one right. So, I've decided that for each one of these episodes I do in this topic, I'm going to top it off with a real weird one. The craziest one I could find for that episode. I couldn't think of a better example to start that trend off than with Batman meets Godzilla, sometimes also referred to Batman versus Godzilla. The film would have been exactly as off the wall as the title would suggest. Two known treatments exist, one from the mind of longtime Godzilla writer Shinji Sekizawa himself, commonly referred to as Batman vs. Godzilla, and another from an unknown American author that goes by Batman Meets Godzilla, 
While the author is unknown, that American treatment can be seen in person at the American Heritage Center in the University of Wyoming. As part of a collection of papers belonging to the Batman TV series producer, William Dozier, who must have also been attached to produce this film, both treatments are fairly similar. A run through the plot, and when there's a divergence in the two scripts, they'll go over both versions. The exact date it was proposed is unknown, but it is apparently a sequel to 1966's Batman the Movie, so it must have came after that. Here's what we know about the plot. The film opens with Commissioner Gordon and his daughter Barbara, taking a well-deserved vacation aboard a cruise ship setting sail for the Far East. But of course, Jim Gordon doesn't know what vacation means and is just in on the trip to, and I quote, scout police facilities in the Orient. Barbara is using the trip as a chance to reunite with an old friend from her days at Vassar College named Riku Hamamoto. All's well aboard the vessel until, out of the blue, a massive tidal wave hits and capsizes the entire thing. According to Outer Pole's Far Eastern Chief, Ito Nogano, this weather phenomena was the doing of Klaus Finster, an evil German meteor meteorologist who, after being held up in Argentina for 20 years, made his way to Japan, where he somehow has a lair underneath Mount Fuji, where I hear it snows a lot. Quick aside, I haven't seen anything explicitly saying this, but given that this movie was being made in the mid to late 60s, the German dude is an evil mad scientist who was apparently in Argentina for 20 years, meaning since roughly 1945, where many of them reportedly fled following the Second World War. I think old Klaus here may have just been a Nazi, or at least he was supposed to make the audience infer that. Klaus Finster is holding Japan and its seas hostage. He claims to have control over the weather and will use his technology to destroy the country unless he's given $20 million in gold. Jim Gordon lets Outerpol know only two men have the skills needed to take him down. Batman and Robin. As some very unfortunate luck would have it, when Klaus said he controlled the weather, what he actually meant was that he had complete control over Godzilla. Which, like, dude, why would you not lead with that? Anyways, he flips a switch, releasing the kaiju from the Marianas Trench upon learning of the duo's pursuit of him. Cape Crusader and the Boy Wonder meet the robotics expert who greets them with a robotic version of their friend and ally, Count Dreidel, complete with brand new gun-eye technology. They promptly dispose of the imposter and reconvene with Gordon. For some reason, Batman suspects Godzilla is somehow involved in all this and decides to watch some tape. He watches Godzilla's fight against King Kong and somehow determines from that that, yep, Godzilla is definitely involved. A waiting game ensues. Bruce and Dick want to try and tactically wait for Finster to slip up and leave an opening for them to attack. This, of course, would make for a very boring film, but it is the perfect excuse for the dynamic duo to get into some smaller-scaled hijinks along the way. They make their way to a kabuki show, which soon becomes the start of an action set piece, beginning with a katana sword fight in which an ambush is initiated by a bunch of actors on our, on our protagonist. Raiko gets decapitated in the midst of that fight, but turns out she was one of Klaus Finster's robots the entire time. 
Batman and Robin attempt to set up a meeting with the meteorologist, but soon find themselves in a car chase with motorcycles that Jude Spike's chasing. They're caught along the road and find themselves in, I quote, a taxicab torture chamber filling with poisonous gas. Barbara Gordon shows up just in time as Batgirl. She takes a pocket-sized blowtorch to the cab door, allowing her team to escape. The chase then resumes and at some point takes them to a Japanese bathhouse. Respecting local customs, the trio drop all their clothes at the door, sans cave and cowl, and a near-naked Scooby-Doo-style pursuit and fight then ensues. We do eventually get to see Batman come face-to-face -face with the King of the Monsters. The first encounter comes from a recon mission, of course conducted via Batcopter, over the area of Takata. Cape Crusader's reports from this mission earn the full trust of Japan's government, which declares millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. The script notes that this line was first uttered by Charles Cotesworth Pinckney, Minister of the French Republic in 1797. That's when the team gets word that Godzilla is making headway to Osaka. They board a bullet train to the city and encounter the Big G. Something happens that isn't detailed in the write-up I found. But whatever it was, it reveals Godzilla is affectionate towards Batgirl. This causes Batman to have a thought. Godzilla is clearly a being capable of emotion. Why would any emotional creature go into hiding for years and then emerge every five years? Because apparently it was established at some point in the script that Godzilla returns every half decade on the dot. That creature would only do such a thing to mate, according to Batman. I'm not sure if that's biologically accurate, because hibernation is also a thing, even in certain rep rep reptiles, and I don't think Godzilla is a dang cicada, but again, I ask, what do I know? This is where the two treatments differ a bit. Batman and Robin soon conjure up a plan of attack, or rather, a plan to attract, and Sekizawa's treatment, the dynamic duo is struck with the idea of building a transitorized female Godzilla. This is a good time to mention that I'll usually refrain from referring to Godzilla in any gender-specific terms, just because a lot of the movies don't make it clear to what gender, if any, Godzilla is, and there's a lot of needless and dumb debate online as to which Godzilla from which movie is this or that, and it even differs from dub to dub, so if you're wondering why I've been doing that, well, that's why. Uh, that's why I've been using they and them, stuff like that. And no, King is not explicitly a gender-specific term. Ask King Yadiga of Poland or the multiple women who were crowned as pharaoh throughout Egypt's history. Anywho, back on track. This Godzilla was seemingly meant to be a dude. In Sekizawa's treatment, the duo build this fembot Godzilla to break Finster's mind control over Godzilla and lead him back to the water where the film seemingly comes to a quiet close. Gauzier wasn't too stoked about this, and he felt that it would cost too much money. So the unnamed American author, who honestly may have just been Gauzier when I think about it, but that's not confirmed, changed it up a bit. They build a machine that replicates the mating call of a female Godzilla, and while he's distracted, they knock him out with a well-aimed explosive through the skull. And then Batman goes all democratic with it and decides to pull the Japanese people on what to do with Godzilla. Launch the beast into space, or toss them into a volcano. Unanimously, the vote comes back with, launch Godzilla into space on a giant rocket. 
Batman, Robin, and Batgirl hop into a swanky new Batmobile made by some local scientists and engineers, which the treatment goes out of its way to specify is every bit as good as the original and a fine commentary on Japanese workmanship. And they make their way to Tokyo. The trio quickly dispatches of the Nazi scientist. After a, after a brief chase through Tokyo's empty streets, they battle atop the Kazan building. Sometime during the altercation, he slips and falls to his death. Godzilla arrives and grabs Batgirl, but Batman shows no worry. He quickly activates the maiden call, which gets the King of the Monsters' attention, prompting him to toss Barbara all the way to the Great Buddha of Kamakura at Kotoko Inn, which, for reference, is about 60 kilometers away from downtown Tokyo. So, quite the pitch. Batman then climbs up, to Godzilla, climbs up Godzilla's back. While the beast is distracted and using a bat rope to him, he ties a bomb to Godzilla's neck. It's a little glossed over how quickly the engineers to build how quickly the engineers manage to build a rocket around Godzilla in the span of like a nap. But hey, it's cool, so it doesn't really matter. They launch Godzilla into outer space to hold an orbit of 278 miles above Earth forever, as the script says. Which is technically a low Earth orbit, and for reference, it isn't even a tie-up as the ISS. Why they wouldn't just launch the rocket into the ether, I don't know. But again, it just sounds like a fun, silly movie. And at the time this was being made, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had only launched a handful of orbiting satellites successfully. With, I think, one from Canada and maybe one from Italy. So I can't expect the movie's space knowledge to make all that much sense. Especially when we're talking about a movie where a giant lizard dinosaur is being controlled by a Nazi scientist meteorologist who fight a vigilante dressed as a bat and his boy Wonder. And apparently, that's where the credits roll. I love Godzilla, I love Batman, and I definitely enjoy the campy 60s escapades of that decade's output of these characters. Out of all the unmade films I've gone over today, I think I want this one to have been made most of all. The 50s to 60s era of Japanese sci-fi movies like The Mysterians, Degara, and Yogg is great, and I feel like this would have fit right in there. So what happened? Why was Batman meets Godzilla never made? Well, it's actually pretty simple. The people involved didn't think it would make any money. And isn't the scratch what it always comes down to? Yeah. Dozier refused to make any sort of sequel to 1966's Batman the Movie after it barely broke even, earning $3.9 million off its $1.5 million budget, the majority of that coming from rentals. That, along with the Adam West-led show's steadily declining viewership and the comics' change in direction towards some more darker and edgier content, led to the project simply fizzling out at the treatment phase. If, any, if anyone's interested in seeing more 60s-era Batman, by the way, there's a 30-issue comic run titled Batman 66, and DC did recently produce two animated films titled Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders and Batman vs. Two-Face. Burt Ward and Adam West reprise their roles in what would be two of West's final roles before his June 2017 passing, and William Shatner voices Two-Face. During my research, I also discovered that a group called Project Batzilla is currently adapting the treatment into a webcomic. It has two issues out at the time of recording, and you can read them at batmanmeetsgodzilla.com. It's probably the closest we'll get to actually seeing this fever dream come to fruition, 
And Batzilla has been doing a great job with it. And that's where we're going to end today's episodes. Episode singular. I missed one upload due to some technical difficulties and being a little sick for a bit. I'm doing all this from an old HP laptop, but we should be back on track now, hopefully. Uh, so which of these unmade Godzilla films do you want to see? And is there any more you think I should cover? Let me know. If you have any suggestions for subjects or for the podcast as a whole, you can find me at culturversepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the latest episode. And I'll see you, hopefully, in two weeks for an, uh, another discussion from the universe of popular culture, where we'll probably have a part two to unmade or canceled Godzilla films.